What's our role in this role-playing game? How do we fit into the team? And what kind of expectations am I holding for the group? Hey, it's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Welcome. As I tried to figure out what it means to be a decent GM, I've also been thinking a lot about what I might expect from my players. In general, I've noticed that I tend to underestimate the guys who come to my table and overemphasize my own importance as the GM. The reality is that these are collaborative narration games and everyone has a role to play. I want to talk a little bit about the struggles I face in coming up with decent character ideas in finding my role at the table when I'm a player, as well as to reflect on the nature of the role-playing group as a team. And then I want to talk a little bit about opening up the table. But before I get into that, here's a very generous call-in from Rob, also known as Menion, from Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy podcast. Hey Jay, this is Rob, also known as Minion. Uh, sorry, I haven't finished listening to the to your latest episode, and um, I wanted to respond. So this is um, in response to your your belief or this kind of fallback that you are inadequate as a GM. And I thought um, you could kind of expand on that because uh, inadequacy doesn't have to be your own inadequacy. It can be the inadequacy of players. It can be an inadequacy of the of the adventure line um, that you're developing, the worlds that you're you're playing in, and, and also the inadequacy of um, of the rule system. And these are all reasons why people can sort of like brush aside a, a system or a setting or an adventure or you know and, and say, hey, let's let's try something else. Um, but that's kind of getting away from what you were saying a little bit. But you know, bear with me for a few moments. I think you know. Decent people, nice people can often say it's them that's wrong when actually they mean something else that's wrong. It's you that's wrong or, you know, it's the system that's wrong or something's really bug- bugging them. And the fallback position for those uh, such people is to say, well, actually, it's me. I'm not, you know, I'm not cut out to to play this style or um, I'm too flaky or I don't have the ability to commit to so many sessions. Now, I'm not saying any of those are you know, particularly is the issue in your case. But um, certainly in my case, um, obviously my personal case, um, I found that a number of campaigns failed, not simply because of uh, an inability to sort of um, master a system or to dedicate oneself to, to a game or whatever. It's sometimes because you're ex- expecting too much of other people as well. So like, um, you know, when I was running Pendragon, I wanted to run Pendragon and I wanted to do Talislanta and RuneQuest. And, and I found that the, in many cases, these games demanded so much of other people. Uh, I, that is, I was demanding so much of the players that they just fell apart. Um, 
so sometimes I think um, it, it's all right just to just play and not kind of expect everything to be this perfect thing. Because I think immersion can come, even if it's not something that we actually set out, set out to do originally. So apologies once more. Um, I haven't finished listening to the podcast, the episode, and also many of these points may not be uh, pertinent to your situation. But I think it is worthwhile uh, considering possibility that um, many of our uh, intellectualizations are often deflections, ways, ways of deflecting um, the problem onto something else, including um, ourselves. Um, but maybe you've gone on to that later. Anyway, just some thoughts uh, for now, and uh, perhaps we can we can sort of make this more concrete and a, a future date. Excuse me. Anyway, I had to get that off my chest. Cheers. Thank you, Rob. Lots in there to think about. And yes, immersion can very much arrive during any game, although. I do hold the view that it's more likely to emerge from a game that allows space for its arrival. For me, one particular comment really stood out and pretty much inspired this episode. The idea that as GMs, we are asking a lot of our players and that sometimes this is just too much. This is why many games fail. Thank you for that, Rob, because I think I, for one, needed to hear that and reflect on it. What are we asking of our players? To fit into my games in the past, you needed to fit into my schedule on a regular basis, bi-weekly generally, turn up on time, own your own dice, be willing to create a character for the game, which meant you also had to know the rules, at least for character creation, and you probably also needed to know the rules of the game because you couldn't be entirely sure I'd know them well enough to run the game. The current players in my Mr. game know all about this. But on top of that, you'd also be on board to either learn about the pre-published world we are playing in, or possibly even harder, because there's nothing in print, learn about my homebrew world as we play. And sometimes I'd be badgering players to write up game reports, which means taking accurate notes, and more recently, I might be asking for players to help organise the schedule, wrangle the monsters in combat, or even recruit other players. None of that is intrinsically bad or wrong, but it is a lot. When I play with teenage students at the school club, I have much lower expectations. I ask them to come along for one session and see how it goes. I usually have either a pre-gen character to use or... Taking tips from the Alexandrian on open table gaming, I have a quickfire way to create a character. And I always give them a set of dice. I also use character sheets which have the different polyhedral dice shapes shown and labelled as a quick reference. The very best ones are from the Starfinder beginner box where the dice shapes are on the edge of the sheet so I can encourage you to place your actual die next to each of the types shown. I tend to run a very generic fantasy scenario. Almost always it's goblins, a small five-room dungeon, probably a trap and a few clues to work out that the fifth room is hidden. I don't expect them to know the rules. I just ask them to roll the dice. For the best games with newbies, I have learned to stop teaching them rules. I just use the basic rules that I can actually remember. Reference cards and the GM screen are my friend when I play a game like say, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, because I really can't remember much more of the details. 
and I certainly don't worry about creating a deep world for them to learn. It's generic, and the goal is to help them feel comfortable playing. I remove world knowledge as a barrier. And I don't badger them to do anything other than play. No note-taking, not even map-making. Nothing more than be here, tell me what you want to do in this situation, how you want to do it, and occasionally roll this die or those dice. Why do I lay out on more for my more experienced friends? It's a good question. Just because someone can do more doesn't mean we should get to assume they will want to do more than be here. Tell me what they want to do in this situation and how they want to do it. And occasionally roll this dice or those dice. So thanks, Rob. Deep food for thought. I've been rereading the GURPS Basic Set Characters book as part of my preparation for running the new science fiction campaign, Serene Dawn. We had the first two sessions over the Christmas 2021 school holiday, and while I'm a big fan of the game system, I've always found it quite hard to sit down and just create a character out of whole cloth. Don't mistake my meaning here. I can pretty comfortably take any character idea a player throws at me and stat it up using GURPS character points. My problem is coming up with a concept in the first place. Coming up with a character concept and shaping that idea into a persona that you can roleplay in a game is not a question of rules, but rather of methodology. Some games, most notably to my mind, Traveller, offer a methodology as part of the rule system. In Traveller's case, it's a life path methodology. But most games assume a very simplistic pair of options. Either you randomly discover your character through a process of random roles and broad choices, or you are left dangling with the instruction to come up with a character concept and then build it with the rules. I found rereading GURPS basic set characters helpful because while accepting that there are many methods that might be employed, the core advice is very practical. Quote, the two most important things to know about your character are who he is and what role you want him to play in his adventures. End quote. I think that most role players forget about this element of play, the idea that you have a role to play in the adventure ahead, and instead tend to conjure up images from fiction, from which, most commonly, they end up conjuring the kinds of solitary heroes that make action films and novels exciting. And here's where a comment from How to Be a GURPS GM resonated with me. Quote, It might not be realistic, but adventuring party equals trained unit is the most practical assumption when playing, running, or writing for an RPG. I strongly believe that this is necessarily the unstated default premise of any role-playing campaign, and that players who do not assume this, with a room full of other players sitting right there, are at a disadvantage. I find it disturbing when I meet gamers who assume solitary loner unless the GM demands team, when it's clear from the way games are written and the way the vast majority of gaming groups meet and interact that team unless the GM allows loner is the unspoken golden rule of the entire hobby. End quote. To unpack that a little further, I think that two pieces of advice have stuck with me over the years. When you are creating a character, Make sure that they're basically likeable. And then take the time to imagine at least six situations in which you can see your character making a significant contribution to the game. 
One of those is about making sure that the other players, including the GM, will like your PC. Failure to do this leads to a recent disaster I had as a player in which my character, leaning in hard on the idea of him being curious, basically dicked over the rest of the team to serve his own selfish ends. That game is no more, and I can't help but wonder if having a character who wasn't really a team player was a big part of that failure. The other element avoids a situation I have seen many times over the years. The really cool character concept, who turns out to be basically useless in 99% of situations that arise in the game. One example, again from my own palette of failures, is the highly intelligent computer programmer slash hacker who, in a modern day supernatural investigation campaign, was basically useless at investigating offline. He knew basically nothing about the supernatural and was certainly awful in a fight with a monster. These are role-playing games. You are meant to be playing a role. But a role is not the same as a job or a profession or a goal. Our roles are the responsibilities we have in the social groups we inhabit. If you're part of an adventuring team, then it's highly important to know one's role in that team. Maybe that you have more than one such role, depending on the situations that you're facing. To improve on my hacker idea, I could have asked myself some questions about what role they would have in various different imagined situations that would reasonably come up in play. What would he do when investigating a haunted house? What about when facing down a rabid werewolf? How about when trying to get information about an underground cabal? Thinking around the needs of the team would have led me to a broader character concept, but wouldn't have stopped me from making them a cool computer nerd too. Where does this leave us? Well, I'm coming to believe that you need to ask yourself what kinds of situations you might reasonably see yourself involved in, and I think you need to consider your character as part of the wider team that is the practical default of almost all role-playing games. Once you can see the situations and the kind of team you need to fit into, you can begin to invent a character who has a definite range of roles within that group. Yeah, I know that's why D&D has character classes, and I understand that niche protection is hardwired into the most popular games, and as a consequence, gamers with systems like that don't need to think about this stuff quite so much. But the downside of all that prescriptive, pre-designed role-making and niche creation is a simple one. You lose the freedom to invent something unique. You also find yourself locked into the same old patterns of play that we've all seen a hundred times before. I'm ready to build campaigns for players who want to design their very own characters, but with that freedom to choose any hero, any concept and any role comes the requirement to think about what your new character offers to the wider group. Telling the GM the role you envision for your character, even outlining the kinds of situation you imagine them excelling at supporting, is a great way to invest them in your ideas and get to play them out at the table. Related to this idea of taking on the role is an idea which I've already alluded to. RPGs are team games. Alexander Macris in his book Arbiter of Worlds provides us, I think, with a very useful analogy. He writes under the heading, Tabletop Campaigns are Team Sports, Not Social Events, the following, quote, If you're planning to start a successful campaign, you need to explain to your friends that you are not hosting a series of social events. You are starting an intramural sports team and asking them if they'd like to be on the team, end quote. 
I think that this idea of joining a sports team is a useful analogy because it immediately begins to address the question of what we expect from players in a pretty evocative way, despite the fact that, as a long-term hater of sport, I initially felt distinctly uncomfortable using sports analogies to talk about my hobby. At a social event, it's okay to be fashionably late, and you show your social status by showing up late, right? So people also feel comfortable with blowing off a social event. And it's maybe unclear what's expected when you get there. Some people feel it's an opportunity to dominate the conversation. Others like to share war stories from their busy work lives to impress us into seeing how important they are. And perhaps others like to just mooch the free food and drink. As an introvert, I know that I can easily find reasons not to attend a social event, and even if I do make it over to the event, then I'm perfectly comfortable standing on the sidelines and enjoying the show, because, to me, watching extroverts compete for attention, well, that's amusing. Contrast this with the concept of a sports team. Everyone understands that there is an expectation for the team players to show up on time and ready to play for a sporting event. Imagine that the football team striker doesn't show, or that the goalkeeper blows off the game tonight. To extend into American football, everyone gets that the quarterback needs to show up on time, right? In a team sport, everyone is vital to the success of the whole. Everyone trains hard to be ready to play. Players learn the rules of the game, and they also think about what's expected of them before they go out onto the field of play. And it's less about individual ego and status, or at least we all recognise that it should be less about the individual. Role-playing games are like a team sport and not a social event. And if you want to set the expectations of your players, it might be worth starting with that or a similar analogy. Except, remember what Rob said in his call-in? Are we asking too much? I think that setting out to run a long-term and deeply rewarding role-playing game for a group of players is a lofty goal and something I personally value very highly. That said, not everyone can commit to the sports league. Neither can everyone commit to the big games that I have in mind. Enter the open table. Instead of trying to get players to take part in a very rich, complex and long-term role-playing campaign, Justin Alexander suggests going back to the way we played these games back in the early days, when we were 11 to 14 years old. When I was a teenager, I remember that my friend Daniel ran the sessions most of the time, but when he couldn't, we'd meet elsewhere and someone else would take up the mantle. We could grab new characters or continue with the current crop, but it, it didn't matter too much because the goal was that we were going to play today. I know that we aren't teenagers anymore and we don't have the free time that we used to have, not by a long shot, but we could choose to set a day and a time, perhaps once a fortnight or every week or even just once a month. We could decide that whoever is free turns up to play. The commitment is to the schedule, the idea of playing, rather than to any one specific game system or world. I mean, we could decide that the game is set in one world and that anyone could run the session for the others, but we could also choose to have a troop of characters rotating which we played depending on the needs of the game this particular session. We could stop worrying about whether the story is an epic or the characters are levelling up quickly enough. We could engage in the fantasy as friends together today. The play could be the priority, 
we stop looking for one particular set of outcomes and we embrace the uncertainty and playfulness of the open-ended role-playing game. Now, I can't help but wonder how liberating that might turn out to be. In this spirit of playing for the sake of playing, the Alexandrian suggests a way to provide the game by making the table open. Open to whoever shows up each week and not worrying about who will be at the table. To do this, he provides a manifesto of things that you need. Quote, In order to be successful, I believe an open table requires or will greatly benefit from quick character creation, easy access systems, open group formation, default goal, default action, regenerative or extensible content. End quote. It's a simple formula that I began to explore back in early 2019. It's the formula that I brought to the table at school. For those who've not heard Season 1, Episode 3, back then I said, and I quote, This role-playing game, Lark, does not require complex plots, detailed characterization, in-depth research, and hours of preparation. The sessions do not need to be played like a high-end entertainment production, with players in role acting like they were in a soap opera and channeling the spirit of Chuck Norris. It can be played with a small piece of paper, pencil, and dice. With a GM who has a cool dungeon that they are excited to run, and with players who want to roll dice and find treasure, it needs the spirit of a 10-year-old kid who wants to have fun with his mates. And so I brought the BX Essentials rule set alongside the Caverns of Thracia, a bit of a classic mega dungeon, and I also brought a load of cheap dice to give to all the newbies, and I knocked up an advertising poster that showed the 1981 cover image, the old D&D logo, and the words, Mr. Webster's Open Table, along with a room number and time, Tuesdays, 3.30 until 5. Chaos erupted, a wonderful, energetic, and exciting chaos. For an open table, you need a game that can generate characters quickly, in less than 15 minutes, really. Pre-gens can work, but the Alexandrian argues you lose something if a player doesn't make their own character. I now believe he is completely correct, and therefore you need a game that allows fast character creation, when probably without digital aids. Pencil, paper, dice, bam, character. You need a game system that is easy to access. Quote, This does not, it should be noted, necessarily mean a simple system. Rather, an easy access system is one which allows players to start playing quickly. D&D 3rd Edition, for example, is not a simple system, but it is an easy access system. Once you explain skill checks, combat actions, attack rolls and damage, a new player has everything they need to know in order to start playing. End quote. This is hard to be precise about, but you know it when you see it. You also need an open group formation. You'll be opening the game up to different players and combinations of players each session. Justin explains, quote, Because different players and or characters will be participating in every session, the open table requires a premise which supports the constant shuffle of personnel. In general, I found this breaks down into either A, expeditions, or B, organizations that can assign task-specific teams, end quote. You need a default goal and a default action for the players. It's the answer to those two questions that Justin Alexander post about game structures when I spoke about it way back in Season 1, Episode 2. Quote, 1. What do the characters do? 2. How do the players do it? These questions might seem deceptively simple, but the answers are complex, and getting the right answers is absolutely critical to having a successful game session. End quote. 
dungeon crawls, hex crawls and mysteries are good game structures for an open table. And finally, the open table needs regenerative and or extensible content. In other words, you need to be able to reuse material you have every session or extend it with ease. Low prep solutions. Mega dungeons and hex crawls traditionally excel at this. But what's the core point? Well, if you have a group of players who want to play but find the schedule difficult, stop trying to run something they can't commit to. Run an open table. It doesn't have to be any less immersive, by the way. Pulling the rules behind the screen so I don't expect players to have to know the rules is completely compatible with the goals of encouraging character immersion and other world immersion over time. It's just that you're allowing the players to choose whether they want to take advantage of that. It's an optional approach, not a hard expectation. For me, I think that this is what I need to return to with the school club. I'm working on playing my open table solo to begin with, but if someone wanders over and asks what's going on, I'm going to be able to get them on board inside 15 minutes and take it from there. I can slip from player GM solo mode into GMing for a player or a small group very easily. What I need to do is build up a small portable gaming go kit and carry it around on Wednesdays at the school club. From there, it's just a matter of being open to seeing who wants to play. Game on. Hey, Jay, Jason here. Just listened to Roleplay Re- Rescue Season 10 episode, Turning Up to Play. Michael's email is very interesting, and I definitely am in the same boat where my practical skills have deteriorated due to computers. Spell check, grammar check, penmanship, of course, is horrible. You know, in my head, I know what cursive writing should look like, but when I try to do it, it, it's quite incomprehensible. (laughs) But not that it was fine, was ever great. But yeah, I'm glad he wrote that in to to share that because that's definitely true. As far as the idea of always turning up, and even if you're not playing the game, but just to chat, I think that's very true. I think keeping the group together, no matter what the group's doing, but having that regular meeting is essential. So that's a great point, and I'm looking forward to your next episode. Take care, my friend. And that's it for this week. Big thank you once again for showing up and listening. Thanks also to our callers today. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to call into the show via anchor.fm slash RPG Rescue, where you can click on the message button. I do especially enjoy hearing your questions. Finally, I'd like to say a big thank you to John from Tale of the Manticore for the theme music. I think it makes a big difference. Thank you, John. And that's it for this episode. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.